0: Right, good morning, I guess. Uh, joined with Aaron and expressing our welcome to you here. We're glad to have everybody here with us this morning. Uh, I know getting get down here a little late, but not, not much I can do about that sometimes. But we'll get started. Um, <coughs> they were a little loud. Sounds a little loud. But there was a... Years ago, there used to be a, a TV show. I didn't watch it all that often, but I saw a couple of episodes and about a couple of brothers who would, uh, they had a small plane service and they would fly people from place to place. And uh, so one of the brothers got on the, the plane early in the morning. He's sitting in one of the passenger seats reading a magazine, and all the people are coming on. They're boarding the plane. And then he looks around and he says, What's taking so long? Why are we waiting? He said, well, nobody else will fly the plane. I'll fly the plane. He gets up, walks into the cockpit, and they all start screaming. Yeah, kind of about how it is here. Nobody else is going to teach. Then eventually, I'll come downstairs, and, and I'll teach. But um, but anyway, we're going to continue pick up where we left off last week. We're going to have another history class this morning. But hopefully, we'll get through the history today. And then starting next week, we'll be picking up some other topics. But as we talked about earlier, then history class really is is good for us, although it may not necessarily be interesting because we're hearing things that we've already heard, things that we already know, but a lot of times we overlook some of the lessons that are buried in that history, and so we want to try to look at some of that today. Again, we're going to pick up uh, back where we were in Acts chapter 7, and we'll try to go a little faster today so we can get through this. Um, We're going to start talking uh, really in verse We're going to begin talking about Moses. Uh, Stephen's speech had gone through his earlier discussions. He had discussed Abraham. Um, We had talked a little bit about Isaac and Jacob. On Moses, he talks about the fact that Moses was a deliverer among his people, raised up by God to bring an end to the suffering that was foretold by Abraham. 400 years of slavery that they had endured, and now they were going to be freed from that. God arranged the event so that Moses would be raised in Pharaoh's own house and would be given the opportunity to be trained in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. At the time, the Egyptians were one of the most advanced civilizations. We look back today and see the things that some of the Egyptians did and go, why in the world did they do that? You know, it doesn't make sense. Some people look at and say, how in the world they do that? <laughs> how in the world they do that, yeah. But they were known for their, obviously, their building. They were known for medical, all kinds of things like that that they had accomplished in their time. We look back some of their medical things now and go, no, no, no you know, don't have anything to do with that. But at the time, they were well known for their their uh, society and the advancements that they made. So Moses was given an opportunity then to sit and to learn from these teachers uh, because God had arranged that. He set it up so that Moses would be the deliverer, and he knew that to be the deliverer of the people, Moses is going to have to be very familiar with the culture of the Egyptians and the, the politics, I guess you would say, of the Egyptians, because he knew that he was going to have to deal with Pharaoh in the future. So he was brought up in Pharaoh's own house so that he could learn these things. But at this point is where Stephen's conversation, his defense, changes. He's basically been reciting history and he's been telling the people how wonderful things have been, how great God has been, all the wonderful promises and accomplishments and stuff that have come. But this is the point where Stephen begins to change his speech. We have to realize now that Stephen knew pretty much before he began this that this was probably going to be his last talk, right? He knew that they had condemned him before this trial ever began. And so at this point when he changes, he changes his approach and it begins to point out God's continual care of the Israelites, but their tendency to reject God and reject the prophets that God sent to them and how they frequently turn to idol worship. So you can picture up to this point the audience has probably been with him because he's doing over all these wonderful things in their history and their past and great things. But now he's telling them honestly, brutally honestly, you've rejected God. And you've not only rejected God, you've done it repeatedly. This is not something that's new. Uh, He reminds them of the rebellion against Moses, that his prophet, whom they now hold in high esteem, prophesied the coming of Christ. So he's telling these people, you rebelled against Moses, but now that that's in the past, you see Moses as a great prophet. Well, this great prophet that you are talking about told you Christ was coming. When we look at Deuteronomy 18, 18, it says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It was common that they often rejected God's leaders, that their rejection of Christ was nothing new, and they had not changed, and they couldn't see the truth. So he's basically telling them, God has sent people to you, sent men to you to teach you, to lead you, to guide you, and you rejected them. God sent Jesus Christ to you to lead you to guide you, and you rejected him. He said, you can't see the truth. So why could they not see the truth? Well, obviously it's not that they could not read it, right? They had history. They could recite history. They understood what happened. They couldn't see the truth because they didn't want to see the truth. right? Christ didn't come in the form that they wanted him to be. He didn't come with the plans that they wanted him to have. And so they rejected him. He reminded them that God was not restricted to the temple that existed before the tabernacle. That he's not limited to a single place. By their refusal of Christ, they not only rejected the Messiah and their own salvation, but also the will of the Father and the work of the Holy Spirit. A writing from H. Leo Old stated that the council must have seen the parallel suggested in Stephen's words. Their fathers had rejected Moses, yet God sent him. So they rejected Jesus, but God sent him to deliver them. There is a deadly parallel between Moses and Christ that the Sanhedrin must see. They must also see that they are doing to Christ and his disciples just what they had done to Moses. So this is what Stephen is pointing out to them. And this is when everything begins to turn but he gave a great history of the people of Israel and how things had occurred and how they had reacted. Their good times, but also their bad times. We all have those. There are times when being a Christian is easy, and sometimes there are times when being a Christian is more difficult. So, this wasn't only. Isolated to the Israelites, it is to everyone. The difference is how do we respond in those difficult times. Looking at applications of this, Abraham chose exactly the type of faith that God demands for those who follow him. He wasn't commended for his belief that God existed, but for his acceptance and obedience to God. We look at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 10, it says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that He was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac, Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham's faith was unquestioned. It didn't matter what God asked him to do, Abraham did it, he did it willingly, and he did it happily. A lot of times we will do things that God asks of us willingly, but we don't necessarily do it happily, do we? Many today want to acknowledge God, but don't want to do, don't want to do anything else. They don't want to follow his commands to help him with others in need or to give them the time for worship. Back in 2008, the Pew surveyed, Pew surveyed, surveyed the Americans, 78% of Americans confessed to being Christian in 2008. In 2018, the number is at 65%. Out of the 65%, 24% attend services regularly. We want to be Christians, but we don't want to work at being Christians. That's the problem with our society today. We want everything given to us on our terms Not on God's terms. The numbers may look strange, especially in a land of the free, a land that was built on religion, built on Christianity. But a lot of people don't understand Christianity. Someone in their family dropped out from church a long time ago and the family has never come back. If you ask them about Christianity, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian, I believe in Christ. But if you begin to ask them about what the Bible says, they have no idea. They don't feel like attending worship is worthwhile or needful. But as we talked about before, if you have any questions about attending worship, flip over to Hebrews chapter 10. Begin reading it about verse 24. We have to realize the book of Hebrews was written to Christians. It wasn't written to alien sinners. It was written specifically to Christians. And it talks about the assembling of ourselves together. We're a family, right? We're supposed to be. We're children of God. We're to come together to help one another, to edify one another, to build up one another. But it talks about people who forsake that assembling in that section. And it says God will take vengeance upon those. It was pretty plain, right? Regardless of what the majority of people in our society think today, you cannot get to heaven without going to church. But our society doesn't want to take the time for that today. Stephen showed us that individuals often repeat the mistakes of those who have gone before them. We can see that in the history of the Israelites. We can see that in our society currently. We make the same mistakes. We looked at that last week. We're going down the road that Rome did. We're just doing it a lot faster. We should remember that as terrible as our mistakes may be, they cannot thwart God's plan for our deliverance. If we are willing and we obey, then God will be sure that we will be saved. But we have to do our part. Okay, moving on into our next section. This is about history, but a little later. It's not the early Hebrew history, it's later. The history of God's people is recorded throughout the pages of the Bible. And the entire sections of Scripture are classified as books of history. The historical accounts are valuable because they reveal the thoughts and actions of people discussed. Without bias, both victories and failures are reported in the Scriptures. And as readers, we're expected to learn from those. The Old Testament teaches about how God thinks and how he plans. It teaches about how the salvation of man came about. It is brutally honest, and many complain about it. But don't complain about the books men write that do the same thing. We get complaints all the time from people who are outside the church about the Bible. Oh, it's violent. Have you read some of the stuff in that? Have you read about the wars have you read about some of the things that they did the people? Well, i got news for you. People back then weren't any better than they are today. We do the same thing today. Have you read the news a few years ago about waterboarding people? We haven't changed. But people are quick to criticize God when they won't criticize their fellow man. The Bible tells us how things were honestly for the purpose of learning from that. Were there bad things done in the Old Testament scriptures? Absolutely. But they're recorded so we know not to do those things. By studying the history of God's people, we learn to imitate good things such as Abraham's faith and avoid unbelief. The thing that hindered the Israelites. Above all, we see God's wonderful scheme of redemption. The lesson text focuses on a portion of Paul's sermon delivered at the synagogue in Antioch. Those leading the services offered Paul and Barnabas the opportunity to address the crowd. The sermon emphasizes the faithfulness of God in his keeping his promises to the nation of Israel. But when reading this, it brought up an interesting question to me. They were invited to address the crowd. If we were somewhere today and somebody invited us to address the crowd on religious matters, would we? Could we do it? Have we studied enough ourselves that we could speak to other people? That's one of the major problems in organized religion today. When we look outside, we see a lot of people who don't Study the scriptures. If you've had discussions with someone with other religious groups, a lot of times, as we talked about before, what you'll hear is, well, let me go ask my pastor. Okay, on the Day of Judgment, your pastor's not going to answer for you, right? We have to answer for ourselves. On the New Testament, we're all priests. We don't have a Levitical priesthood any longer. We don't have that clergy that you hear about some of the denominational world. We are all priests. And as priests, we're all expected to be able to study, to learn, to teach. I think we're lacking courage. And I think a lot of us have the desire to speak up. I imagine myself sometimes addressing crowds. Mm-hmm. Especially with all the riots going on. I think, I could just go there and say this. <laughs> but, you know, you're going to have to, you're going to be big down. Right. And you it's, are. That's, anyway. that's part of the persecution that the scripture tells us about. Yeah, and it has been that way for some time. I mean, when we look back in history, it was the 1950s, I think it was, the Church of Christ was the fastest growing religion in the country. After but, war, but Not any longer. Being really prayed a lot when they needed, Just like the Israelites, right? <laughs> After adverse times, they come back to the Lord. And then they drift away. And I thought they were doing that after 9 and maybe for a day or two. It was very short-lived. It? So it, it still occurs. It just doesn't occur as much. But we're looking at this in history to learn from this. And when we look at it, it defends God's endeavor to provide for man's eternal salvation to show God's plan in, in, that ultimately involved his son in his death, burial, and resurrection, right? That's what we're looking at. I told this seventy years ago mm-hmm. in 1950. That was seventy years ago. No, it's hard to believe. A couple of generations, right? And we're drifting. But uh, Kelly and I had a discussion the other day, and it's something I told her, so I, I put it in here. Kind of, it kind of applies to this. When we look at the Bible, the Bible contains much history, right? But the Bible's not a history book. The Bible contains much science. But the Bible is not a science book. When we look back at the Bible, it has never, ever been proven wrong when it comes to history, when it comes to science, anything else. It is always correct. But the Bible is a book about the salvation of mankind. These other things that are in there are to help us in our faith to believe. But the Bible's purpose is not necessarily to record just history or to record science. Or to record poetry or anything else. The Bible's purpose is to teach us how to be saved. All the other things just add to that and help us in our faith. Looking toward this letter history, we start with John the Baptist in Acts chapter 13. Paul begins his discussion at the period of the Egyptian bondage. He mentions both 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and 450-year period in which the nation was ruled by the judges and also the period of the kings. By starting with common ground, he was well received. Something we need to learn from. If he had begun with the new doctrine of Jesus Christ, he would appear to be an apostate from the Jewish faith, and he would have alienated his audience, right? There was a problem there already, so he was careful as how he approached it. When discussing Christ with others, we should look for common ground to be well received. When we get into a discussion with someone about religion, what is our purpose of talking to them about Christ? To bring them closer. Right. We're trying to bring them to Christ, right? So if we start the discussion in an argument, how successful are we going to be? We don't want to be arguing with people we're trying to convert, right? We want to discuss with them, get something going on common ground, and then, as Paul does, we lead them to Christ. Unlike some other religions in the world, you can't be forced to be a Christian. Christianity has to be accepted. There's no conversion by the sword when it comes to Christianity, right? Um. A lot of people probably do want that. They just have not had enough background in the religion to understand it. And they don't want to deny themselves the things that they want sometimes. Yeah. Well, it's like we discussed last week. A lot of people look for a church that fits their lifestyle, they don't look to change their lifestyles to fit the religion. You know, the church of Christ is too strict. Well,. Mm-hmm. It's what the coming out of 6 and 8. Church Christ is no stricter than the scriptures. Because that's what we follow. A lot of today is is the way society has gone. Anytime you kind of listen to anything, just about it, you'll hear somebody say, Well, that's your truth. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what you think. Like, there's a lot of different truths out there. Right. The scripture tells us the prophecy of scripture is not open to private interpretations. Mm -hmm. And and they had actually scripted arguments called debates. Mm -hmm. And they put the facts out there. And people check the facts Mm -hmm. because they realize this is the final authority. I don't believe a lot of people realize that. They don't even accept it. This um, is the final authority in religion. And so doing mm -hmm. that kind of thing doesn't do you as much good as... Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of people, their whole family has drifted away from Christianity for so long they don't understand... Scripture and the Bible and the authority that it has. Plus what we see all the time on TV, because we sit in front of TV all the time, uh, they refer to other books as holy and and the holy scriptures and stuff, um, which aren't. Um, We see that in in different religions now who identify and, and see Christ as someone who is important. But then they try to blend their own thoughts and their own works with what the Bible says. But Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the light. No one comes to the Father but by me, which rules out everyone else. He didn't say, me and others, he said, by me. Christ is the final authority. There are no prophets after Christ, the Alpha and the Omega. Them. Paul then moves on to discuss the promises that were made to David which most of the cherished hopes were based he begins to lead them by almost imperceptible steps in his discussion we talked about could we lead someone today are we well versed enough in the scriptures that we could have a discussion with someone and lead them in those steps to see what's right We've had plenty come and talk to us and and tell us some of these things. And one of the things that I think we need to remember is the fact that when we're discussing Scripture with people, we need to have that Scripture there. And then when it comes to reading something that's in the Bible, we need to ask them to read it. You know, if they're reading it from the Bible itself, then now they can't argue with you whether it's right or wrong. They're arguing with God whether it's right or wrong. A lot of times that can make a significant difference. By emphasizing those promises, he uh, establishes a connection between David and Jesus. He then announced to them that the Messiah had been raised up by God in the family of David, which is exactly what the prophecy had stated. Paul then mentions John, who people recognized as a prophet. Any Hebrew at that time that was familiar with the Old Testament would have expected the ministry of John. Seven centuries, 700 years before the birth of Christ, Isaiah spoke concerning John. He said, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Isaiah 40 and verse 3. And then also, when we look at Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. If you don't mind, turn over there to that. Malachi 3 verse 1. The scripture reads, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So when you're reading that scripture, we talked about before, a lot of times reading in the Bible takes breaking down things to understand what's going on. So you may be reading a book, but you break that down to chapters. You're reading a chapter, you break that down to verses. A lot of times when you're reading a verse, you have to break that verse down into sentences, sometimes even down to words. Those are the things that we need to do when we're reading and in this, we look at that. He talks about first, he said, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. The distinction here between that messenger and the other one he says at the bottom, it says, And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. The first messenger is preparing the way for the second messenger. That's what it's telling us here in this verse. He said, He will prepare the way before me. So we have two messengers here. We're not talking about the same individual messenger is clearly parallel in principle to that Isaiah side that we talked about above, which, as we've shown, focuses on the ministry of John. The first messenger is John. John is preparing the way for the second messenger. Okay? And then the latter prophet that we talked about a the messenger here, Elijah the prophet, the, testament, the New Testament, we have the, the testimony of the angel Gabriel and Christ, talking about the fact that this was John preparing for this second prophet. The second one that was coming, the messenger of the covenant. Who could that be? Jesus. All right. How do we know that? Because he buried the temple at age twelve, fulfilled the messenger of the covenant. Right. When we're talking about covenant, what do we say covenant was? Agreement. It was an agreement, a contract, right? That's how we would refer to it today. Who could establish a contract between God and man? God, right? Jesus Christ. John was just a man like us. John could not negotiate a contract between God and man. We're on one side of that equation, the wrong side. The only one who can negotiate a contract between God and man is God Himself, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. So if this is the messenger of the covenant, this has to be Christ, right? So John was preparing the way for the coming of Christ. That's what the prophecy is telling us 700 years before it occurred. God is long-suffering. Right? Then Paul goes a little further to speak. He begins to talk about Jesus. Beginning in verse 26, that Paul then arrives at the most important component of their history, the coming of the Messiah. This is what the Israelite nation has been waiting for. It's the beginning of the nation itself, the promise of the coming of the Messiah. But they had reacted violently to Jesus rather than receiving him. And Paul tells them because they did not recognize him or understand the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. What he's saying here is though they weekly had access to the prophets' testimony concerning Jesus, the Jews did not make the proper connection, identifying him as the Messiah. As a result, they ended up condemning their own Savior. They, did, they went to the temple, right? They went and offered the right sacrifices every time of the year that they were, they were demanded. They attended the weekly gatherings and studied the scriptures with the scribes. But they didn't know the scriptures. Even though they were there at these supposed learned men, the people still didn't know the scriptures. They heard it weekly. They couldn't identify the Savior when he came. That's true today with a lot of people. There are a lot of people who read their Bible and look at their Bible, but they don't take the Scriptures for what they say. They go by what another man tells them the Scriptures say. And that can cost us eternally. Five times in the Bible, Christ asks, those learned men, have you not read? He's telling them, the information that you need is there. Have you not read? Information that we need is here. So the question is, have we read? Have we studied? Do we understand the only perfect man to ever live was put to death on a Roman cross because of the people's lack of knowledge. If they had recognized Christ as their savior. God was all aware of how man would respond to his plan of redemption rather than being unexpected. The rejection and death of Christ were components of the larger plan. Um. A few years back, I began reading a series of books and got Bertha hooked on them and got Chris hooked on them. But the author was looking for a new approach for his plot where the hero would die, but he would still accomplish his ultimate goal. He thought he had hit something new here. He's not going to write a book where the hero always wins, right? He's going to write a book that's different. But he didn't realize the story had already been told, did he? He didn't realize it had been done by Christ. Christ defeated his enemies by dying for our sins and accomplished the greatest goal that mankind has ever seen, right? That story had already been done. As a part of his plan, God raised him from the dead, and evidence for his resurrection includes the empty tomb and numerous witnesses. Which leads us then to the gospel. Beginning of verse verse 32 through 41, it talks about here, Paul considered the story of Jesus to be the message of salvation and described it as glad tidings. These men that we're talking about, the apostles, were some of the closest men to Christ in this time frame here on earth. So when you speak of someone's death as someone you're close to, it's a sad occasion, right? But that's not how Paul looked at it. Paul said it was glad tidings. (laughs) He said it was good news. And he proclaimed um, that God did what he had promised the fathers that he would do. He accomplished that goal. When we look back in the scriptures and we think about this idea of the gospel when did the teaching of the gospel begin? Yes, yeah, a little bit of a trick question. So, what's the obvious answer? Teaching of the gospel. Back when Abraham offered up Isaac, gospel Yeah, somewhat. I mean, the the obvious answer would be when the apostles began to preach, right? Which we know that's not correct. When we look back at Titus chapter 1, read verses 1-2, to it says, For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. So the first teaching of the gospel was before the ages even began. Before we were even created, God was already working toward this goal. Um, Paul said, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Acts 13, 30 and 39. The gospel is the completion of God's redemptive plan. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ... And we must believe that this is true. We must also follow the teachings of the Messiah. In other words, to obey. When we talk about follow the teachings, it doesn't just mean to profess that Christ is Lord. It means to obey what Christ taught us. Okay? To believe in the Messiah but not to obey him is vain. In other words, it's worthless. It doesn't matter how much faith we have and we know who Christ is, if we're not going to obey Christ, it's not going to do us any good. So comparing the two lessons where Stephen showed how the Jewish people rebelled against God, Paul focused more on how God's faithfulness was in providing his son. We need to be reminded of the consequences of our decisions and we also need to hear about God's wonderful plan. Paul emphasizes to the Jews that Jesus could do what the law of Moses couldn't do. And as we talked about, we need to realize the consequences of what we do, our actions. If we drift away from the faith, it's not just us who's going to be lost. It's going to be our family, our children, our grandchildren. We don't want to wake up lost eternally. But we definitely don't want to wake up lost eternity and see our entire family there with us. Thank you.